0: I'm Susan Moran. This is How Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. Coming up, we'll hear from physician and author Gavin Francis about his new book. It's called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. It's an exploration of the many ways each of us can play an active role in the process of getting over an illness or injury. We begin with a look at some upcoming science events.
1: I'm Shelley Schlender. What would you think about a collaboration between CU Engineers and NASA, you know, the space agency, plus the local kite and toy store, That's what you'll get to be part of this Sunday afternoon if you go to the grassy field just south of the Engineering Center on the CU Boulder campus. It's a kite flying and teaching and scientific event. There will be kites. Some will be small enough for little kids. Some will be so big they can carry a payload. For more about next Sunday's kite flying event, let's go to the CU Boulder campus and talk with one of the organizers. My name is Megan Afalapir.
2: I am a mechanical engineering master student here at CU. Is this the best project
1: you've ever worked on?
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, it's one of the best projects I've ever worked on. I've been working on it for a few years now.
1: Unlocking the kite room.
2: How big are these kites? Anywhere from 7 to 10 feet wingspan. They're huge. (laughs) So we've got five or seven different types of kites. The one that we usually fly is the into the wind alpine dc into the wind are you talking about a science group called into the
1: wind or are you talking about the toy store
2: so i'm actually talking about the toy store on pearl street they make all kinds of kites they kind of specialize in that NASA has kind of decided that these are ideal kites to use for research scenarios because they are so big and easy to use. Toy store kites? Yes.
1: Did they have to redesign them for your science experiments?
2: I'm pretty sure you can buy them and fly them if you wanted. They just have them in the store, like against the wall. They're so big and easy to use. They're really easy to use with our systems. I'm going to grab three kites out of here. If you want to take these, actually, I'll get the instrumentation, if that would be okay.
1: Oh, that's right. This is a science thing.
2: This is basically the NASA AeroCats AeroPod system. You just said NASA. It's a NASA K-12 through outreach program. I'm going to have to kind of put this together. But this whole thing is foam, wood, and 3D printed material super lightweight. This stick here has two fins to make sure that it levels out in the air.
1: Does it carry something scientific?
2: We have a couple things that will go on the end of these. This first thing that I'm about to show you is... You're unzipping it.
1: Oh, it looks like a meter that you might use in your home for electrical stuff. It's no bigger than a smartphone. Yeah. Except it's yellow.
2: (laughs) This is an atmospheric detection device. They'll collect data like wind chill, temperature, wind speed and
1: direction, dew point, humidity. It's bigger than a Lego man, Yeah. but it does kind of fit like into a little Lego seat.
2: Yeah, and we turn it on and just kind of let it go with the kite, and as it goes up, it will collect data. When we bring the kite and the aeropod back down, we can plug it into any of our computers, and it will... output of an excel file with all of the data that was taken and we can go ahead and do data analysis based on that
1: kids can use this a kindergartner could use this yeah today we're going to go out in the field and try out this instrument
2: it's the field right next to the integrated teaching and learning lab which is 1045 region drive yeah and so it's this big field so i'm not sure if there will be enough wind to fly today, but we can definitely try. Okay, so you're gonna put one of these kites together. This big one does have two uh, spars that go into the sides to keep it rigid, as well as one crossbar that goes through the middle.
1: Oh, look at this, it's as tall as you, but 10 feet wide. You've got a beautiful kite opened up. It's blue and red and yellow, rainbow bright.
2: It looks like the wind should cooperate.
1: Okay, you're hooking it up, you're clipping the long line to the kite itself there it is clipped on you're getting your gloves to protect your hands this is suspenseful
2: (laughs) and i'll just wait for a little bit of wind
1: oh my goodness it's over like 30 feet 40 feet in the air
2: i'm not sure how long this line is i think maybe 200 feet but legally we're not allowed to go over 400 so it's probably good that this line is only 200 feet
1: (laughs) but look at this It's above CU Boulder. People are stopping to look at it with the sun behind it. going to be sunny on Sunday also. Yeah, so I'm going
2: to need to check the weather, but I'm pretty sure it'll be sunny and we'll have a good wind, so it should be a good day to fly.
1: The Kite Flying Expo takes place this Sunday from 11 to 3 in the green grass field just south of the engineering school. The address is 1045 Regent Park. That's this Sunday, kite flying for KGNU. I'm Shelley Schlinder.
0: Expo at CU Boulder is designed to provide hands-on education about how to create and use an aerodynamic device, in this case, a really fun kite, and how to use that device to collect climate data. The data will be uploaded to a NASA-designed Mission Mapper database. That's part of a citizen science effort about our climate. Also on the science calendar... If you're a fan of the stars, and who isn't, check out an event at CU Boulder's Fisk Planetarium. That's on Sunday, October 22nd at 2.30 p.m., You'll get to immerse yourself in the cosmos and delve into the new revelations from the James Webb Space Telescope. That's the largest, most powerful and complex space telescope ever built and launched into space. Experts at FISC will share the latest Webb Telescope discoveries that blew the minds of astronomers. And they'll be ready to field your questions. And also at FISC, on Thursday, October 26, an event will offer information about the Lucy mission which launched two years ago. Lucy will be the first spacecraft ever to fly by Jupiter's Trojan asteroids. Join Lucy mission scientists for a mission update as they look forward to up-close views of Trojan asteroids and more. For many of us... The time we spend recovering, whether from a broken leg, a virus, a chronic illness, or a crisis of depression or anxiety, can feel like a very unwelcome obstacle on the road to health. Modern medicine too often assumes that once doctors have prescribed a course of treatment, healing takes care of itself. But recovery isn't something that just happens. It's an act that we engage in, and that personal engagement has the potential to transform our lives. Up next, How on Earth Beth Bennett talks with physician Gavin Francis about his new book. It's called Recovery The Lost Art of Convalescence, including his experience supporting the active role of patients in getting better. <music>
3: Welcome to the show, Gavin. I'm speaking to Dr. Gavin Francis on his new book, Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. And this is a topic that resonates a lot with me and probably with all of us because who among us hasn't been sick or been injured? And in this um, short and very sweet book, Dr. Francis talks about both the nature of recovery and the ways in which we can mediate and improve on it so i'm delighted to talk to you this morning gavin Mm. maybe you can start by giving us just a little bit of your story how you got interested in this topic
4: sure of course well thanks for having me along beth so yeah, my name is gavin francis i'm a primary care physician based in scotland and i'm a writer as well i've written various books about travel and about aspects of medicine and um like most doctors In the world, my professional life was really quite knocked sideways by all the different changes that came in with COVID. And um, I had a lot of patients that were hit quite hard with COVID. And then in the year following um, the worst of COVID, so through 2021 into 2022, I was seeing an awful lot of people who were in various ways struggling with their recoveries from COVID, either feeling very fatigued, very exhausted, or maybe still quite breathless with um, with the kind of recovery being stalled in some way. And so I felt like I was having the same conversation again and again and again with patients about general principles of recovery and of convalescence that I took for granted, but I realized that they didn't take for granted. And so the result is this sort of small, short, accessible book, which goes through that. It's a series of, of principles of good recovery that I've picked up over the 30 years that I've been uh, working in medicine. So it's it's designed to really be helpful for people who are recovering from all sorts of things, whether it's mental illness or physical illness, whether it's a broken bone or whether it's a, a nasty viral pneumonia like COVID. So all kinds of things, but there's general principles, I think, that we can bear in mind that are helpful in a lot of situations.
3: Yeah, i want to come back to the breadth of the topics that you just mentioned but before i do that i love the idea that you give your patients a small booklet i think that's such a fantastic idea i think it's really unfortunate more physicians don't do that because as you said uh, many practitioners take it for granted that uh, their their patients or people that don't have much of a medical or health background understand certain things about recovery and in fact the opposite is true And Mm. I personally have noticed that with many viral illnesses, I have that same kind of experience that you described with COVID, that it's a long process and there's, you know, starts and stops. And it's, um, it's difficult to predict. And um, like you said, there's many different kinds of traumas, uh, pathogens, um, injuries, and mental health crises. But there's this kind of general framework so we can, um, Talk mm. about that framework, because I think that's that's really incredibly important, how each one of us can be involved in our recovery on a really active basis and the tools mm. that we can use. So do you have like one go-to um, kind of tool that you prescribe to people first off?
4: Uh, There's not really a, a go-to tool because it depends so much what the particular context is or what their particular illness is. I always begin with a conversation about the patient's priorities and then and I try to encourage them to remember that recovery isn't a purely passive process you know it's it's an act and it's something that we have to engage with and give it time and respect and attention and if we do that then we tend to recover better Um, and I also try and encourage people to And big up a little bit on their self-compassion, you know, be kind to themselves, because often we find that people who are in recovery from various illnesses are impatient with themselves. You know, they're pushing themselves quite hard. They're getting frustrated that they're not recovering more quickly. And that kind of frustration isn't very helpful. So I generally try and encourage people to be a bit kinder on themselves and not compare their own pace of recovery with with other people. Because comparisons are rarely helpful.
3: Oh, absolutely, and I think that um, that self-compassion is is really critical, and it's kind of a two-pronged um, phenomenon. Um, one, like you describe, is that it's it's a a slow process and very individualized. And the term that's come out in the post-COVID world, of course, is pacing. You can't push mm. yourself harder than your body is ready. And sometimes it's really hard to recognize what your body is um, willing and able to do. And, and the mm-hmm. other side of that equation is that with self-compassion, I think that you give yourself permission to heal and invoke that whole suite of of processes that might be grouped under the term mindfulness.
4: Mm. Yeah. and And I think a big part of my role as a primary care physician is in encouraging people to give themselves that permission do you know sometimes it's a really um direct straightforward permission because i give them a certificate that gives them time off their work so that's a very obvious way of getting permission to recover if a doctor comes along and says you need to stop work for a while because you're obviously it's it's depleting your energies too much it's making you ill that's one way but there's another way which is about giving yourselves permission to recover when you're struggling with something you know to this as you as you pointed out Beth it's an extension of that self-compassion to to let yourself allocate yourself that time and space and respect enough to to let yourself heal
3: yeah and an interesting point that you make around that is that uh in in one way this is an opportunity to take some time to rest and recuperate just from life in general because so many of us don't have what we call the work-life balance. And you dedicate a whole chapter in your book to that, which is, I think, really important, especially here in the States where so many people work really hard and don't have that kind of time off.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting what you, st- you said there about how sometimes people can find a sort of silver lining in the cloud of illness. They can use it as an occasion to reassess their priorities to think carefully about whether they want to, to reorder all the different aspects of their life. You know, because everyone would prefer to avoid illness. We would all want to avoid being ill, but we we can't really escape it as part of being human. And um, it can make us engage with our limitations. And they might remind us, those sort of brushes with illness, they might remind us to really cherish health and wellness when we have it and also make us appreciate things in a different way. I've known many patients who after a really difficult, challenging bout of illness, have restructured their lives for the better afterwards because they felt that that illness, although they would never have wanted to go through it, it has given them a new perspective on what's really important.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I am, I've been astonished on several occasions, um, friends telling me that something terrible like cancer was in a way, the best thing that ever happened to them because they reprioritized their lives to give Mm -hmm. themselves a much more fulfilling and satisfying life.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can think of a patient of mine who um, wasn't able to go on doing their work as a a childminder because it was too exhausting, but they reprioritized and they used that inability to go on doing the job they'd been doing for a long time to do something that they wanted to do more which is um work more in the visual arts so that change they 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 felt almost like they didn't have the courage to do it until it became too difficult to go on with the the, what they were doing before and and so in a way the illness the illness was a kind of facilitator in a way
3: absolutely and and I I kind of wonder too how much of that, that that the degree of illness that we experience could be to something um, in our unconscious trying to give us that message that you know you need to take a break and move on and do something that could be better for yourself in the long run
4: mm. yeah it's very um a tricky area to be able to say put down any definites but um undoubtedly you know when we're feeling uh, refreshed when we're feeling fulfilled in life when we're feeling that our relationships are supportive and good those give us the strength to be able to cope with things like illness. And when we're in an unhappy place in our life, when we're feeling our energies depleted, when our relationships aren't supportive, then illness can really get a grip of us. And, And so in that way, sure, many of my patients who are not in a happy place in their life, they are afflicted much more severely by illness because they've got less of a reserve to fall back on. And um, they've got less that is giving them energy and keeping them refreshed.
3: Right. And there's a huge literature on the role of stress in both health and illness. And that's kind of the external part of this equation. And what's really intriguing to me is the internal part. And I, I don't think there's as much knowledge or data about you know, what's going on in any one person's brain because of of course, the 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 mind body there's mm-hmm. it's such a continuum. There's really no discontinuity between the two. But what's going on in our brain that controls the body? Because there's so many amazing um, accounts of ad hoc accounts of remissions and spontaneous healing that occur mm-hmm. from within.
4: Yeah, I mean our our health, our ideas of health, and the ways we recover are so influenced by by psychological, sorry, and social factors biology is a big part of it of course but so is psychology so is sociology and in the book i use the example of this the example that, that is entirely uncontroversial which is the extraordinary effectiveness of placebos you know we know that placebos work and we know that even the kind of placebos that we take actually work so you know red placebos are better for killing pain blue placebos are better for feeling you relaxed making you feel relaxed, sorry. And capsule placebos work better than sort of chalky tablet placebos. And and that's an incredible insight into how powerful our mind is over how it makes us feel. Because we do know that placebos are really effective for all kinds of different conditions. Um, yeah. So yeah. if we could only harness that, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. And even in animals, I, I'm not sure how people have conducted these experiments. It's been a while since I've read this work. But even in animals, placebos work. So it's not just something about human psychology, which is quite interesting to me.
4: Mm, interesting. And recently I read that placebos still have an effect, even when you know they're placebos, which I think is right, extraordinary. Right. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah, yeah. So given the choice, who wouldn't ask for a placebo? <laughs> than yeah, if, if, if it's going to help you. <laughs> And, and another um, point that you raise in the book that resonates with me is the role of nature and how that can have uh, a role in healing. And again, like if people have to take time off work, then they have more time and and space to just be outside. So um, do you find that many of your patients uh, capitalize on that suggestion?
4: Yeah, I think I think they do. People have a kind of instinctive, awareness that that we are part of nature do you know our human bodies are part of the natural world and um, it wasn't so long ago that doctors had to study botany um, as part of a medical degree not only because all the drugs came from plants in those days but also because to study plants and nature is to study is to study life and so the kind of very modern 21st century perspective of human beings as distinct from nature I think isn't true at all and we need to reconnect with nature in all kinds of ways and it's been shown even objectively that if you're in a hospital bed and you've got a view out over a park or a tree that you need less painkillers than if you're in a hospital room which has got looks out over a parking lot and which to me is quite extraordinary shows you how important it is in our minds and another point I try to make in this book is that you know, we have a kind of modern perspective on doctors, particularly on surgeons, that that we're a bit like mechanics, that we swap in and out and broken parts. But the truth is that medicine and the effective practice of medicine is much more like gardening. You know, it's about creating the right environment for healing. It's about creating the right balance between different extremes. And um, and if we could think of our doctors and nurses as more like gardeners than mechanics, I think we're on the right road to a better understanding of healing and of recovery
3: definitely and in that sense it's kind of like parenting as parents were more like gardeners and nurturers than you know mechanics. yeah
4: definitely we certainly don't fabricate our children we we guide their growth yeah yeah
3: yeah and, you, and in a related vein you also made the point that if um personally we're not happy or we don't feel like our practitioner is giving us the kind of care we need, we can ask them for what we need. And I think that's a really important point too.
4: Mm. Yeah, something that's really struck me over my medical career is that again and again, I've seen that different kinds of patients respond better to different kinds of doctors. And the really best physicians I've ever encountered are the ones that are able to adapt their approach, that are able to be, you know, quite objective and paternalistic for a patient that needs that, but they're also able to be collaborative and much more friendly with a patient that needs that. and and I want to, in my modest way empower patients to to feel that they can tell their doctors what they prefer. But, you know, if you want a doctor to be more of a collaborative guide with you, then tell them that's what works for you. If you want your doctor to take all the decisions and step back and be a bit more of a kind of old-fashioned figure, then tell them that you just want them to decide because they're the expert. A doctor would far rather have effective consultations, and if you can help guide them to that, most of them will be really appreciative.
3: Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense to me. I mean, we're all individuals and different, you know, on so many levels, from our DNA up to our personalities and beyond. And nobody knows what we need until we tell them. So I, I really um, support that suggestion that you make Mm -hmm, and and I also liked it that you had a chapter about caregivers and Mm. how they play into this process
4: yeah of course I mean as a primary care physician I have a lot of patients who have very chronic long-term illnesses whose lives would be impossible without the hard work of their many caregivers both family member caregivers but also professional caregivers And so I wanted to acknowledge that in this little book, but also to talk about the stresses that can bear down on caregivers, how really difficult it can be for them sometimes, because they're trying to do the best often for a loved one, but either because there's not enough resources around or because just the simple emotional burden of caring can be very heavy. They... they, benefit when they can find networks and groups of, of 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 others who can help support them through that caregivers are really pivotal in helping help convalescence and I, I wanted to sort of honor and celebrate that
3: yeah yeah there's so many different um participants in this process and as as a final point i think that 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 idea of acknowledging both the caretaker and the illness that we have is really important i mean i think sometimes people are a little embarrassed or see it as a sign of weakness to admit or acknowledge that they're sick or have been injured and mm-hmm. i like it that you said it's okay you know just yeah acknowledge it and and you'll get a lot of support around that
4: yeah yeah and um and i think in the us it varies very much depending on, on your locality i think different states have got different kinds of um resources and services set up to support caregivers but i wanted to encourage I have readers of this book to put some pointers to look in their local area of how they can get more support with the really difficult but vital work of caring.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's a good place to end. And I want to be sensitive to your time. I know that you are really busy with this book and mm-hmm. other things. So thank you so much for talking. And um, keep up the good work. It's fascinating and really important.
4: Thank you, Beth. Thanks, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book.
0: Thanks to Beth Bennett for that interview with physician and author Gavin Francis about his new book. It's called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is I, Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender, and engineered by Sam Fuqua. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Overlapping Wavelengths and Rebecca Folsom's new album Sanctuary. Visit our website at HowonEarthRadio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X